As social justice movements continue to grow in strength and political influence, perhaps there's no issue that is more important to realizing the promise of this country of ours than reforming the criminal justice system. I'm Clay Aiken, and this week Politicon is excited to welcome Pulitzer Prize-winning commentator and author of the new book, Profit and Punishment, How America Criminalizes the Poor in the Name of Justice. He's Tony Messenger, and we're going to do a deep dive into that issue of criminal justice reform because he brings depth and insight, and hopefully he'll bring some solutions to one of the most important topics facing us today, the inequalities of our justice system. He's going to be talking about his views on prison privatization, how we're wedded to profit, profit over rehabilitation. Uh, We'll talk about examining the roles of tradition versus progress as those things relate to justice and how we can uh, move forward. And we'll take on the inequities of the criminal justice system, ask how our laws and policies got so extreme, what issues are people facing when they're brought into the system, How much does state-level revenue play into the problem? That's something that's fascinating to learn about, the revenue needs of our government and how it plays into the problems of our criminal justice system. And most importantly, we're going to talk about what we need to do to persuade people on both sides of the aisle to bring about the change we need. And of course, I'll ask him, how the heck are we going to get along? Are you in St. Louis now? I am. I am. Are you there from, from there originally? I'm from Denver originally. Oh, really? Because I hear, why do I hear an accent? Do I hear an accent in your voice at all? I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, I was born and raised in Denver and uh, lived most of my life in Colorado. And then. um, Oh, now I hear the Colorado. I've been in St. Louis. I know. Yeah. (laughs) Been in St. Louis since 2011. Been in Missouri since 2008. And you say Missouri, not Missouri? I did marry. I did marry. I did marry a Missouri farm girl, so she could be having an effect on oh, my overall. Maybe that's what it is. How you know. is is the Missouri thing a real thing, or that's just the? Uh, it's a real thing, but it's it's only a real thing in 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 pol- in politics. Oh, okay. There you go. Well, then politicians <laughs> real in politics. <laughs> politicians trying to appease to certain rural Missourians will use Missouri, uh, even though. Nobody actually pronounces it that way. So does it work or do people see through it now? Uh, it depends on who's doing it. Depends on how well you wear your cowboy boots and your, you know, your orange hunting vest and everything else. I mean, I, I think it's always fake. I've written about it. I, I, I wrote about a former governor who used Missouri when he was with one audience and Missouri when he was with another audience. And, you know, I, I, I just don't understand it. But it, it's, it still is a thing. Uh, in a political context. I mean, there are a few other, I guess, Colorado, some people do, Nevada versus Nevada. There are a few other places yeah. that have that sort of, I, I want to I pretend I'm a local, so I'm going to try to talk like the locals do, but nobody, <laughs> none of the locals actually really care at all because they can see that you're full of crap. Anyway, that's not what I wanted to talk to you yep. about, obviously. Um, I, <laughs> although we, I'll talk about anything. Um, Hey, it's your show. We go wherever you want to <laughs> I know. go. Well, I get, I get, I've got producers telling me, but I, I do actually. I am fascinated about your book because it's such a specific topic that I'm first of all very, fa- I'm very interested in, in learning how you honed in on this particular aspect of the justice system. We've talked about the criminal justice system 
a lot over the past year, especially uh, since George Floyd's murder. Um, but you've honed in on profit for-profit prisons specifically, and I'm fascinated by them, but people don't talk about them a lot or enough maybe. And I'm interested in how you kind of honed in on this being something you really wanted to talk about and expose. So for me, it started with Ferguson. Uh, I was the editorial page of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on August 9th, 2014, when Michael Brown was killed and, and covered those protests in Ferguson and throughout St. Louis. And, and one of the underlying themes that I wrote about a lot um, around that time was the fact that if you were a young black person or even a, a middle aged or an older black person in North St. Louis County, you had likely uh, been picked up for, for a traffic uh, offense, maybe multiple traffic offenses, ended up owing some fines and some fees to a local municipality. There are a lot of municipalities in St. Louis County, and they all had their own courts and their own police departments. And those fines and fees would add up. And then if you happen to miss a court date, um, you would often end up jailed, not because you broke another uh, uh law, but because you owed these fines and fees. And so that's when I was introduced to the topic. I think that's when a lot of the nation was introduced to this topic of this idea that, wow, there are municipalities that charge people a whole lot of money for these minor offenses. And then sometimes people end up in jail related to the fact that they owe this money. Uh, But what really kicked me off on this topic was in uh, starting in 2017 and 2018, when I discovered another scheme that happens in Missouri and primarily in rural Missouri, and that is you get arrested for a small offense. You end up uh, sometimes being jailed for a period of time because you can't afford the bail or because you can't uh, see your public defender because there aren't enough public defenders in Missouri. You're in jail for a period of time. The prosecutor comes with you, gives you a deal, says, ah, you don't need to be here anymore. We'll, we'll, we'll give you time served and you can go uh, back to your family and your job and everything else. But when you get out of jail, they give you a bill for jail time. This is something that I didn't know existed. Uh, okay, and I'm learning almost too. Every, they give you so it's like your, it's your every hotel county. bill, essentially. Yes, oh, exactly. <laughs> almost every rural county in Missouri charges a bill for jail time, and they charge $35 to $50 a And day. now let me ask, is this something that is charged to people whether they are found guilty or not? Well, that is a question in various states that has been the subject of lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Most of the the legislation that exists in various states related to the charge for uh, jail time, some people call it a pay-to-stay bill, some people call it a board bill, um, happens if you're found guilty. But there have been cases, there's, there's a couple of cases in Minnesota that I write about in my book, um, in which people were charged that jail time before they were found guilty, and the law says, no, you can only be charged after you're found mm-hmm. guilty. Um, so there's a question there. But what happened uh, as I started writing columns about these folks in Missouri is they'd get this bill for jail time. They couldn't afford it. It was a whole lot of money. Right. It wasn't really meant as a deterrence to keep them from committing other crimes. Uh, it was just a whole lot of money that the county wanted to collect for them. And then what happens next is really key. And this is when I became just deeply offended at, at, at what was happening to poor people in Missouri. If you couldn't afford your jail bill, 
or you missed a hearing. What the judges would do, you, you served your time, you, you, you were out of jail, you got your bill, but then the judge would schedule you for a hearing every month to come back and either pay the money that you owed or explain why you didn't have any money to pay. And most of the people that are involved in this scheme are poor people that are maybe lucky to have a minimum wage job. They can't take time off some for of them, them, right? Right. And some of them are battling addiction. Uh, some of the, the cases that I write about are folks who, uh, who, who have various addictions to drugs and they're battling that. And, and the court just makes it harder for them to deal with their own addiction because they have to keep coming to court month after month, even though their case is already adjudicated. And if they miss one of those hearings or they miss a payment, the judge puts them back in jail. So it's not because they committed – it's exactly what it is, not because they committed another crime, but just because they're poor. And one of the main characters in my book is this woman named Brooke Bergen, whose, whose crime was she stole an $8 tuba mascara from Walmart. And she ended up doing a year in county jail for that crime and owing the county, Dent County, in the middle of Missouri, $15,000. And then when she couldn't afford to pay that 15000 which, of course, she was never going to be able to pay for the rest of her life, the judge threatened her with jail time again when she couldn't afford to pay the bill. And this is a story. Don't tell us what happens to her because I want people to buy the book and read it and find out. <laughs> okay, I won't. I'll stop, I'll stop there as it relates to Brooke. But I will tell you that this is a story that happens all across the country. $8 and, tube and, of mascara, $15,000 yes. fines. In fines. Yes. And you said a year of jail time. And a year in jail time. Uh, and it's and it's her year in jail time is related to all of the different elements in which the criminal justice system uh, punishes people for being poor. So one of the reasons that that Brooke did jail time is because in Missouri and in Tennessee in in most of the states in the South and many in the Midwest, uh, Oklahoma, another one of the states that I write about. The, 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 when you are on pretrial detention, if you face a misdemeanor, not even a serious felony crime, but just a misdemeanor, you're supervised. This is, again, before you've even been convicted. You're supervised by a private for-profit probation company. Mm -hmm. These are companies that the judges say, okay, you keep an eye on these people. Well, what do those private for-profit probation companies do? I imagine they they're doing everything people. they can to find these folks in in breach of their provision, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so one of the ways they do that is they drug test people. Well, even if your case has absolutely nothing to do with drugs. So what happens if you're a person and battling these are, and addiction? And these are drug and, tests that are required by the court? These are, so so these are drug tests that the court requires because the court includes it in a court order when they order this, this pretrial supervision. So if you miss a drug test or you pee dirty, mm -hmm. the, the, pro, the, the probation company goes to the judge and says, well, they violated. They, they got to go to jail. And so the judge puts the person in jail. Let me guess. Let me days. guess. Some of these jails are also for profit all, uh, and, and probably run. The, in, in Missouri, they aren't. In Missouri, the jails uh, in, in most of these cases are not for profit, at least as it relates to a private company. But they are seen by the counties as profit centers because what happens if, if you fail one of those drug tests 
and you go back to jail and the judge says, oh, you should have shown up and, and, and taken your drug test and you didn't do it. So I'm going to punish you. I'm going to send you back to jail for 10 days. Well, what happens when you get out of jail for those 10 days? You get another bill for those 10 days. And so, so, so for the, for the, for the privilege of spending 10 nights in the Dent County Jail, which, by the way, is a horrible place, you not only lose access to your children and your job and your car and your house and whatever else you might lose during those 10 days, you get a bill for 300 to $500 to go on top of whatever you already owed. Okay, so anybody who's listening to this and has two, three brain cells in between their ears certainly recognizes that this is, in at least some cases, ridiculously um, unacceptable. Um, but why does nobody care? I mean, don't, I have to imagine that as you, as you research for your book, as you've covered this for so long, you've heard a lot of people say, well, she shouldn't have stolen that tube of mascara. Um, now, I would immediately say, you're right, but she didn't deserve $15,000 in fines and a, and a year in jail for it. But is, is, is the American uh, philosophy of being tough on crime, is that what's gotten us to this point, that people are, that people are constantly feeling they need to be tougher and tougher and, and every prosecutor that runs wants to get tougher? How did we get to a place where it seems like there's multiple layers of injustice being served? Well, we, we, we got there uh, in, in two different ways. And, and, and the first one you identified, we decided that, that we had to be tough on crime. And that meant filling our prisons and filling our jails and filling our municipal jails and our county jails. And, and, and what that means is we're often putting the wrong people in jail because I, I, I get it. When people talk about being tough on crime, they're thinking in their heads, they're thinking, uh, well, you know, murderers and rapists and, you know, people who commit violent crimes, we're going to put them in jail and, you know, we're really going to make them learn. Um, but but the people that I'm writing about and the, the, the majority of people who interact with the municipal and the county courts are not violent criminals. They're people who got a traffic ticket. They're people who stole an $8 tube of mascara. Uh, they're people who got minor drug uh, convictions. And sometimes, you know, one conviction adds to another, adds to another. And because of tough on crime statutes, if you end up with two or three of those, boy, you really get hammered, uh, even if it's not a, a, a serious amount of drugs, whether it's marijuana or meth or, or, or opioids or whatever. And so the tough on crime thing is, is part of it. But there's a second part of it that I think is something that um, that I didn't know about when I started working on this, and, and and to me is an interesting part of the book, and and that's that in 2008, uh, when the country went through the Great Recession, the last Great Recession, um, state revenue in governments in all over the country dried up, mm-hmm. and that happened around the same time that Grover Norquist. The Republican anti-tax activist was going around getting people to sign the pledge saying no new taxes. So three of the states that I write about in this book significantly, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Carolina, all have majority Republican uh, state legislatures. Uh, 
And the majority of the Republicans in those state legislatures have signed Grover Norquist's quest that they're not going to raise taxes. So 2008 comes and they're losing all this state revenue and they have to do something, but they can't raise taxes. So what do they do? They add fines and fees to the court system. How much are the and in almost? Do you know what the percentage of income or the average percentage of income of a municipality in Missouri that comes from these fines is? Well, in in Missouri, uh, they ended up passing a law that says you can only use twenty um, percent uh, or less of your budget uh, from these from traffic specifically from traffic Has fines. That been effective, but, though? but before that there were many municipalities that were that were getting much more uh, of their budget much higher than 20 percent. has that been effective uh, though if, they, if there's a cutoff of 20 percent what happens when you've hit that 20 percent do you just not are allowed to find anybody anymore or do you just roll it over to another account i mean is, is are people following that 20 percent rule to some degree there are still legal challenges to that law um, and there are still cities and counties that are trying to find ways around it. Um, so when when legislatures decided, hey, we'll turn to fines and fees, we'll just we'll just add these, you know, into state law. A lawmaker could say, I'm going to add a three dollar fee to pay for sheriff's retirements. I'm going to add a twenty dollar hmm. fee to pay for uh, the 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 state law library. I'm going to add a prosecutorial fee to help fund the the prosecutor's office. They add all sorts of fines and fees for for many things that have absolutely nothing to do with the judicial system. And that's where the problem comes in. But the second part of the problem is 80% of the people that interact with the courts are poor people that can't afford to pay those fees. Well, I also think so there's, an inc- there's a lack of empathy because as you're talking about this, I think about similar types of encounters with that fee system that I think many people have done. People think of speed traps and you think of the fact that, well, in certain towns and certain areas, you're more likely to get stopped. And I can think of a few here around me where I know you got to be careful because the cops are sitting there to write tickets because we know they use that funding to support the city or support the town's um, budget. But it upsets anybody who gets a speed trap, who gets stuck in a speed trap. But I guess we don't. Those same people who are pissed off about this fee structure that such and such a town is using in its speed traps don't really seem to care about other people um, who are encountering it in much worse ways, right? With um, or they don't, or they don't necessarily know because because they haven't read my book yet. Right. And once they do, <laughs> they will find that I have a section specifically on speed traps because but it's similar. I it's something am people can relate to because we recognize we've I, seen those. But what you what you have recount, uh, talked about before that has been essentially very much like those speed traps, but worse, harsher, and and for things that are, you know, maybe even not as bad as speeding, $8 a mascara. Well, and, <laughs> and, and, and the difference is this. You and I are both um, white, white relatively right. middle-class males who, um, I, I, I'll, I'll speak for myself because I don't want to cast any aspersions on your driving record, but when <laughs> I get hit by a, the speed a, traps. <laughs> when, when, when I drive through a speed trap and get a ticket and it has happened, I write a check. Right, right. And, and and I don't like it, and I I, I I you know I cuss the system under my breath, but I I, I don't go to jail, right. 
and I don't lose my kids and I don't lose my car and, and I don't end up with a with a big bill for my jail time and all of those things. The things that happen to poor black people in Ferguson don't happen to me. The things that happen to poor white people in rural Missouri and rural Oklahoma uh, and, and, and Texas and many other states don't happen to me or don't happen to people who, who have my lived experience. That's at least, that's one of the themes in the book. I, I write in one particular section uh, about a time in which I did get pulled over because I had forgotten to pay a speeding ticket. And that time I got cuffed and I got taken to a police station and I got fingerprinted and all of those things. And my kids at that time were being watched by my oldest daughter um, in an apartment in, 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 in suburban Denver and if I were a poor person, poorer than I was at that time, I wouldn't have been able to get out to, to, to just, you know, give the, the police officer my bail to, to say, OK, I can go home now. And I wouldn't have just been given all of the, the, the privilege that I had to get out of that situation with no serious consequences other than the fact that the 80 bucks I had in my pocket was gone now. Um, the people that I write about in the book are are. No diff. They're just regular, everyday Americans who happen to have been born into a situation in which they live in poverty. Um, and and yes, many of them make a mistake. And you're absolutely right. The first reaction when I started writing about uh, people that that many of whom are in the book. Uh, in my columns, in the Post-Dispatch, I would get responses from, well, sh- if you can't do the crime, yeah. the time, don't do the crime. I would get those responses all the time. And I would respond to people and I would say, okay, so what should be the penalty for stealing an $8 tube of mascara? Is it the death penalty? <laughs> oh, Tony, don't be ridiculous. That's crazy. Okay, so we've established that there are limits, that that people who who violate the law, commit certain crimes, should have different punishment than people right. who do more serious crimes. You agree with that, right? And they would say, yes, I, I agree with that. So should that person spend a year in jail? Well, well, I don't know. She shouldn't have, she shouldn't have taken drugs. Well, was she charged with a drug crime? Well, 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 no. Isn't, doesn't that seem like a little bit of government tyranny to you? Doesn't it require and, and, a level of empathy that people are that way too many people are lacking, though, to understand what you're talking about? Because this, this imaginary person you're having this discussion with, right, is right. clearly lacking the empathy to understand that, you know, I've never been in a position where I was addicted to drugs or I've never been in a position where I... Uh, had to steal food for my kids. Um, I mean, these types of stories that I think really make a lot of people angry when they hear what you're talking about in the book, people will get angry about them, but we get angry and then we move on to the next thing, right? And we move on to our our, our own personal selfish um, needs. I, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about a show that I'm sure you, pro- I imagine you agree, has did a relatively good job of sort of highlighting some of these stories. Orange is the New Black, huge hit, um, highlighted yep. the stories of characters in prison who normally would not be sympathetic to this imaginary person right, you're arguing right. with. Um, but when that show depicted them and showed the real circumstances of how they ended up in jail and how they are humans as well, people got a little bit more interested in learning about for-profit prisons or the uh, the criminal justice system. But still, 
after the episode went off, <laughs> we go back to whatever affects us. So how do how do issues like this, which will make me mad today and will make people who are listening to this mad, which will make people who read your book angry, how do we how do we translate that and turn that into action to change it when it's one of those story it's one of those issues that doesn't affect us, right? So one of the ways in which I think I hope that that my book can make a difference in that regard is that I've identified a topic that actually appeals to both the left and the right. There there are Republicans and Democrats that completely understand certain elements of the criminal justice reform movement, and particularly this idea that we have to stop abusing poor people uh, in the name of justice, that we have to stop trying to use them as an ATM, that we take them and hold them by the ankles and hold them upside down until their milk money comes out of their pockets and we use it to fund our governments. People on the right and the left understand that, and I think maybe they, they come to it um, at a at a different place, but there is movement right now in Congress and in state legislatures to uh, to deal with this. And 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 one of the one of the most specific examples that I write about, in which you're starting to see movement all across the com- the country, is in th- this idea of how we suspend driver's licenses. So in most states in the country right now, your driver's license can be suspended. If you can't afford to pay your fines and fees from a previous court case, even if it has nothing to do with your driving record and people are starting to realize, well, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. If the point of the fines and the fees is to raise money for our government and we take away somebody's driver's license so they can't drive to their job. We're taking away their ability to pay them the money, pay us the money. Well, we that we also want. do the same thing with people who are on probation when they get out of or on parole, and you know it's very difficult to reacclimate to life outside of prison if you can't get to job, get to job, get a job, and get to get work. a job or get right. to, or get to the um, job. I, I, I but it, but the first person, uh, but the first person, Tony, who says, you know what, we're going to give them their licenses back, gets hit as being soft on crime, right? They do, except for when they recognize, wait a minute, this is good for the economy. This is, this is good for families. Are you pro-family? Are you pro-life? Are you, are you, are, are you pro-economic development? You want these people to be able to get to their jobs. You want these people to be able to uh, take care of their children uh, and, and pay their child support if, if indeed they have that as well. We, a lot of states happen to suspend driver's license for folks who fall behind their child support as well. And so that's one area that I think state legislatures are starting to move on. When I started writing the book, there were 19 more states that suspended driver's licenses for failure to pay fines and fees than there are today. That's how many states are starting Lord, to change Lord, how long did it take you to write law. this book? 
Well, it, it, it's moving. It's moving very quickly. It was so funny. I used to I, I kept talking to my editor and I would say, oh, my God, another state changed the driver's license law today when I've got to edit That's it. That's great and, news, and one but point, now we got to go back. At one, yeah. At one point, they just said, look, Tony, we're going to do a paperback later. You, can, you, can, you know, this is this is the way it is. And uh, but that's one area in which there's really a lot of movement. And, and it's a small thing. It seems like a small thing, but it's a huge thing if you're that person that gets your driver's well, license back and now you can legally drive to work. Well, a lot of, I mean, a lot of progress is made in those small steps. You're right. What about, I'm um, speaking of steps, First Step Act was, that's one of the very few things that happened in the last four years or so that, that had some degree of bipartisan support. That's, that obviously affects more often federal um, criminal justice. It does. It's, it's mostly, it's, it's, it's mostly uh, federal folks getting, getting folks out of their uh, really long prison sentences that were probably too long to begin with. But here's the importance of the First Step Act, and I write about this in the book. Uh, former President Donald Trump, who I'm not particularly a fan of, former President Donald Trump supported the First Step Act. In fact, he ran a, a commercial during the Super Bowl two years ago pushing uh, his signing of the First Step Act. And so when President Trump says, I'm in favor of criminal justice reform, I'm in favor of people not being stuck in prison for too long so that they can get back into society and be with their families and get jobs and contribute to the economy. That sends a message to people on the right. Hey, wait a minute. It's okay to be in favor of criminal justice reform. And so to me, it doesn't matter whether or not the former president actually uh, – understands much of the topic and cares about it as, as, as much as I do. What matters is he signed the bill and he said it was was good and he, and he gave permission to people on the right to support criminal justice reform. And that's a really big right, deal. Right, but what does that say about our political society in the first place that it took a that, – that people on the left have been fighting for criminal justice reform for, you know – quite a while, but it took one Republican to jump in and make it okay for the rest of the Republicans to agree with something that, you know, maybe they would agree with, but for the fact that this is a Democrat issue, so we're not going to touch it. And, you know, in this one particular instance, the broken clock is right twice a day. Um, Donald Trump happened to be right in that moment, and he was correct on, on criminal this part of criminal justice reform. But he would, but it would not have happened had one person on the opposite side not ex reached over and and been bold enough to do something that the rest of the party was not willing to do for partisan purposes, right? I think it says something about human nature. Um, we 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 like to listen to people that we think we have respect for, that we think have beliefs similar to ours. Um, and it makes a difference in terms of how open we are to listening, how persuadable we are. Um, there's a, uh, there's a chapter in my book called the ACLU meets the Koch brothers. And, and it talks about how bipartisan criminal justice reform is and how here in Missouri, uh, the ACLU on the left and the Koch brothers on the right have actually done some, um, uh, some public forums together on some elements of criminal right. justice reform, including the First Step Act. And it's important on both sides of the political spectrum that somebody who's carrying the message 
uh, is somebody that um, that you trust that 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 speaks your language. Um, I used the word tyranny earlier. People on the left don't talk about tyranny a lot. People on the right like to talk about tyranny. The idea of of putting people in debtors' prison seems tyrannical. Well, it to me. is, yeah. Uh, and and and, we and, and, it. and so. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, using the language of the right or the language of the left, you and I were joking before we started recording about Missouri versus Missouri and how some politicians uh, use that different uh, pronunciation in order to curry favor right. with with folks. Well, pander. when I you're call talking about <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely pandering, but but using the language that people understand to to explain criminal justice reform in a way that help might move the needle forward isn't necessarily pandering. It's it's finding a way to be mo the most persuadable that you can um, uh, on a topic that that has widespread support. I mean, is that a I, I'm thinking I'm, I want to try to make this hyper a little more hyper local for you. St. Louis has been, especially in the last few years, sort of on the forefront of doing some things differently um, from the way other places have. The prosecutor in St. Louis has been far more progressive in the way she has chosen to prosecute certain crimes or not prosecute certain crimes. Um, you have a new congresswoman, um, Cori Bush, there who has been very outspoken on certain... Are those, are those the, is that an effective way to address um, uh, this issue? Has the prosecutor in St. Louis, and unfortunately I've forgotten her name, you'll have to help me out, but um, uh, has, has she been effective in both curbing criminal activity and and also preventing some of these injustices that she that she's wanted to. So uh, I, I would say Kim Gardner's Thank her you. name, uh, Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner. She hasn't been super effective uh, in part because she hasn't managed her office very well, um, and in part she faces the same sorts of challenges that. Progressive prosecutors face in L.A., in Philadelphia, in Florida, and other places where they've been elected that the, the the police union and the folks on the right come after them so hard and make it hard to do their job. So so that's complicated. That's another place but, that but I just have never understood. Sorry to interrupt you, but it just blows my mind. Progressive conservatives have always been so very anti-union, and progressives have always been so pro-union. There's an opportunity, if you ask me, where progressives would like to restrict some of the power of police unions. <laughs> you would think conservatives would get on board with that. But I'm sorry, I digress. <laughs> yeah, it's just one It's one of those places where it's like the exception you realize that the rule, I think. You flip sides here? <laughs> I don't yeah. get it. Sorry. <laughs> to to I, I, to get to the point that I think you're trying to get to, so I, I did something purposeful when I was writing my columns on this debtor's prison topic in Missouri, and and I felt bad about it at the time. Uh, most of of the victims that I wrote about in rural Missouri were white. Mm -hmm. And there were some black victims that I ended up writing about as well. And I didn't write about them at first, because 
I was trying to influence the Missouri legislature, which is white, Republican, and rural. And I wanted to get their attention. And so there's a a woman from St. Louis named Precious Jones, who I wrote about, who got a speeding ticket in Lafayette County. And I ended up writing about her case eventually. Yeah, but they don't care about it. But I sat on it. I sat (laughs) on it for a while. And and I kept telling Precious, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I got to wait until these lawmakers are on the hook, until they're like calling me up saying, oh my gosh, Tony. This is awful. These people look like us, and we're allowing the judges and the and the courts to to abuse them. This is this could be my brother. This could be my right, uncle. Right, but you are making the, so, you are getting exactly where I was trying to get, which is are the people are, are do the people who are fighting in this justice movement do they get that that I think you inherently understood. Well, I, I think they do, but there's also, you know, there's there's a divide within the criminal justice movement as well. I mean, there are folks um, who are are, you know, abolitionists um, who who you know sort of the defund the police folks and the folks who who really want to just get rid of the 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 criminal justice system in its current form, um, who are pushing harder, and there are folks more in the middle. That, that are saying, hey, let's let's reform this. Let's let's get rid of the wealth extraction. I mean, it's it's like every other political topic. Um, there are wide uh, ranges of of potential solutions. I think everybody on the left and the right that that studies this problem recognizes that we're charging people way too much money. Um, that has nothing to do with with criminal justice reform, and it's leading to people being put in debtor's prison, and we have to do something to fix that. There's wide agreement on on that. The solutions, how do we get there? That's where there's there's great disagreement. A conservative might say, "Well, we're just not going to build a new jail. We're we're going to stop, you know, spending money." And we're not going to build a new jail. A liberal might say, well, let's stop arresting people for all of these offenses. Let's stop arresting people for smoking a joint or whatever it is. They both get to the same solution. If you don't arrest people for smoking a joint, you're not filling your jail. Did they try that in California? I mean, not not, not just for for drug offenses, but in California, the prosecutor, some prosecutors have said they weren't going to prosecute crimes, uh, property crimes, or even thefts that were under $900? Is that what it was? Um, and has that been effective? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't quite studied that. I do know here in Missouri, and we talked about Kim Gardner, and there's also a progressive prosecutor in St. Louis County, Wesley Bell. Um, they both stopped uh, charging certain, uh, you know, minor drug offenses and basically worked with police departments to say, hey, let's stop filling our jails with folks who don't belong there. Let's not overcrowd the jails. And I do think in that regard, there's been some progress. We're, we're getting to the idea where we recognize, look, the United States has the worst mass incarceration mm-hmm. problem in the world. And and there comes a time when we can't afford it. There comes a time where it's unjust. And there are a variety of ways to get us there. Uh, you know, I'm 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 a fan of of some of the solutions on the right and some of the solutions on the left, as long as we put people less people in prison and stop trying to extract their wealth. Sandra Day O'Connor has talked, has done quite a bit of um work since she retired from the Supreme Court, talking about the importance of not electing judges. Um, Her position, I mean, whether you agree with it or not, her position is that uh, being 
that that politicians should be and must be accountable to the their electorate, but that judges should be able to rule based on the law, rule based on um, you know what's written in the Constitution or in the law books, and should not be swayed by popular opinion because we've seen quite a few times in this country um, where popular opinion did not necessarily uh, align with the principles and I think that I think we'd we'd like to aspire to. Um, is there an argument at all for prosecutors not being elected? That's a good question. You know, I haven't thought about that. I, I write about uh, the need for judges not to be elected in the book. Um, the prosecutors because are, the United States... Go ahead, sorry. The United States is one of the only countries in the world that actually has a group of, of, of judges who are elected. We, we, we put our judges in place in this country in, in a variety of different ways. But there's, there's, a, there's a part of the book where I write about the fact that the circuit judges in Missouri are elected. And they're the ones who are putting poor people in jail to raise money for their local county. And yet the Missouri Supreme Court, which has judges who are appointed through a merit system, ruled unanimously that those other mm-hmm. judges were acting unconstitutionally well, North Carolina, we and against all. the state statute. North Carolina, they're all and elected. So, and, <laughs> so, and so I think there really is value in making that separation I, and looking at the fact that we probably shouldn't be electing judges. But I ask, I, I ask about I don't the know about prosecutors, because, but I like— But I ask about that because I think about people like Kim Gardner, who regardless of whether or not— She's been effective because of her staff and and her her whatever issues are there. She has been one of very few prosecutors who has been willing to do something bold and different. Right? She's been someone. That's true. She's been someone who's stuck her neck out on the line. And I can't say she's the only. We've seen a few in Philadelphia. We've seen them in other places, but she's the one that comes to mind and that you know well. Um, she's been willing to do something bold and um, different. Uh, and try a strategy that that probably has data behind it as that, as being effective, but I wonder if she would ever have been able to do that if she weren't in St. Louis, an area that is incredibly progressive, that's willing to let someone do something different. If she were in Charlotte or Atlanta, or or almost any other place where the the political demographic is not so monogamous, it's not so progressive, would she not have been, would she not have had to appeal to voters so much that she couldn't do that? Well, that, so, so, so your premise then is what if, what if we uh, appointed prosecutors through some sort of merit system, similar to how we, we appoint some judges. No doubt with some checks and balances in place. Right, right. The, the question I have about that system, having not spent a lot of time thinking about it, is would a Kim Gardner or a Wesley Bell or a Larry Krasner in Philadelphia have have been elected, have 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 risen above in that system that might be controlled by the establishment that frankly is pushing back against progressive prosecutors? In, to some degree, as it relates to prosecutors, mm-hmm. I think there is a value that the, that the elections are helping to change the concept of what it is to 
to be a prosecutor. And that, but that works. And again, I'm not, I've just asked the question. I actually haven't, I've yeah. spent as much time thinking about it as you have. I thought about it as we were talking, yeah. but I do wonder if, you know, there, there is just a, there are certain things where, you know, we take a look at what just happened last week with the, the case against the three men who murdered Ahmaud Aubrey and the fact that the prosecutor in that, um, of course, now escapes my mind. The county, um, the county, uh, Brunswick County, Georgia. The prosecutor is now being charged herself with obstruction of justice because her primary interest was making sure she didn't piss out, piss off the voters in that area because right. she wanted to get elected. Right. So she was willing to let these three guys get away with something that nobody thinks they should have gotten away with. Um, and they had to go all the way to Cobb County to find a prosecutor who could who could try it. Um, and I just can't help but think that there there are some areas of our political system, justice system, governmental system, period, where we need politicians to represent the voice of the people. But there are other areas where we need people to be – we need our officials to be above that, to say, I'm going to do what's right regardless of whether it's popular. And therefore, as a prosecutor, I'm not going to prosecute these drug offenses because it wastes money. And yes, I know that you're pissed off because somebody got away with smoking pot, but – you know, it's it's the more responsible thing to do. Again, I don't know the answer to this, but it's an interesting question that hopefully your next book will be about. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a it's a topic it's a topic that's actually been uh, talked about, and I've written about a fair amount in in Missouri lately about this concept that a prosecutor's job is to be a minister of justice. And so, for instance, we just had a case where a gentleman named Kevin Strickland, uh, a, a, a black man, had been in prison in Missouri charged wrongfully with murder for more than 40 years. The prosecutor in Kansas City, Gene Peters Baker, is the one who filed the motion to get him freed from prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and eventually had a hearing last week, and, 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 and he's finally free. Um, but the attorney general, right. also a prosecutor, right. had been fight had been fighting it, and and so it's this push and pull of what is a prosecutor. Well, the attorney job. general is a, the attorney general is accountable to the people all over the state of Missouri, which has tended a little bit more conservative in the past yes. dec- few decades. The prosecutor in Kansas City probably has a little bit more left-leaning constituency. And and arguably, I like the tra- fact that you use the term minister of justice um, because, yeah, that's what they're supposed to be. And I thought as you were saying that, it's like, we probably would not elect our religious leaders <laughs> because we don't, because the religious leaders, our ministers, our real ministers, should be telling us what the book says or what the what the religious doctrine is, not what we want them to tell us, right? Um, so prosecutors sort of have <laughs> should have that sort of responsibility. Also, I'm here to administer the law as it is written, not as people hope I will, because they just want me to be real. Because because the people just want me to be real tough on poor folks, you know. Well, and that's that's one of the reasons why it's so important. I spent a lot of time in the book talking about judges. It's why judges have to be independent. Because whether, you know, the judge's job is not to be buddy-buddy with the prosecutor. 
the the judge's job is to uh, protect the rights of the accused and to uh, you know rule on the law and to be judicially independent. And what happens in too many of the cases that I write about is the judge is just the person who helps the prosecutor put somebody in jail. And the prosecutors also, and we've heard this discussed quite a bit in the past year and a half. Um, prosecutors probably shouldn't be too buddy buddy with um, the police department if they are also responsible for prosecuting police officers who have done wrong. Um, You know, certainly they have a relationship with police departments. They need to have that symbiotic relationship. They've got to work together. But there have been hundreds, many people who have argued that in the case of um, of of, of an officer-involved shooting or a murder like with George Floyd, perhaps the prosecutor in that area should not be the one to be in charge of of prosecuting or charging uh, the police involved. Why have people talked about that for so long, but nothing's ever been done about it? Well, because there aren't many prosecutors who are willing to charge police in those situations. I mean, the... the, uh, you mentioned the the Arbery case, and that doesn't involve police, but again, it involves a prosecutor trying to protect um, a former cop. You know these white people from any sort of uh, 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 circumstances, any sort of uh, results of of their actions. Luckily, another prosecutor stepped in. But you mentioned Kim Gardner earlier. That's one of the places where Kim Gardner has been effective. Uh, in at least trying to stand up and say, hey, my job isn't to to just work hand-in-hand in in police. I've got to keep an eye on the police, too. And so she's brought charges against police. How much am I willing to bet they hate her, though? Oh, they don't like her at all. exactly, so it doesn't work. And and the federal... The, the federal U.S. attorney in, in St. Louis has also brought charges against St. Louis police officers and won convictions. And so but why not have a, y- an independent you have body? to be able to— Why not have an independent body in the state of Missouri and in the state of North Carolina who's, who's a prosecutor charged specifically with handling those sort of officer-involved incidents? incidents um, so that they don't have to—so you don't have to be worry about a prosecutor being willing to charge a cop. Um, but someone who's it, in charge it, of that. it depends on how you it depends on how you set it up. There's an argument that the local prosecutor is is the person who's most responsible, uh, most responsive to the local voters, uh, and so even though it creates a conflict, it, it should be that person. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that was one of the arguments that came up when I first started writing about this topic uh, back during Ferguson. You know, I worry about uh, there was a proposal uh, in Missouri the last couple of years to say the attorney general should be the one who investigates uh, all that you wouldn't know, have worked in shootings. that particular well, state. But. <laughs> that, that wouldn't work in Missouri right now. I, I, I don't trust our current right. attorney general to ever investigate a, a, a police shooting independently. And so, you know, that's a, it's, it's a tough but one. But it's also one um, of those things that people have talked about for a long time. We recognize the problem, but very few people are either able to see what the specific solutions are. And I'm not saying that what we just talked about is the solution for police officers abusing and shooting innocent, unarmed black men. But people can recognize the problem, but far too often they're not able or willing to actually identify a solution and then push for it. I remember on this on this podcast, the week after George Floyd was murdered and the tape came out, we 
we had a panel on that week and I asked them, is this time, please, is this time going to be different? Are we actually going to do something about these innocent or unarmed black men being killed by cops? We've seen it over and over and over and over, going all the way back to Ferguson and before. And people last summer actually seemed to believe that something would be done and that this time would be different because we had the video of it and people were worked up about it. But I tell you what, Tony, I don't see qualified immunity immunity gone away. I don't see um, uh, police unions being reined in from protecting cops. I don't see solutions to who prosecutes police officers or makes charging decisions. None of that has changed. So why is it that we all see the problem, but no one can actually move forward on coming up with a real solution. Change is hard in the criminal justice system, but and, – and it's often sometimes local. You are seeing some changes. I mean there, there were some repercussions in the George, George Floyd case. Um, there, there was a, a, a national awakening that at least lasted for a period of time that I think changed some, some minds and opened some hearts. Um, and it's not over, over yet. You know, the, uh, DeRay Mekison, uh, who I first met in, uh, Ferguson, uh, when he was on the streets there, uh, protesting a lot of times likes to use on Twitter, a hashtag, um, the movement lives, and, you know, I think that's something about civil rights that, you know, whether it's whether it's voting rights, you know, the Voting Rights Act, Act passed in the 60s, but we're still fighting over it. Civil Rights Act passed in the 60s and we're still fighting over it. I mean, these these things, the you know, Martin Luther King Jr. talked about the, you know, bending the arc of justice. I think we're continuing to bend the arc of justice uh, as it relates to reforming various elements of the criminal justice system. But it takes a long yeah, time. It sure does. And sometimes uh, it goes backward, to Tony. Change. As you were saying that, all I could, th- does. All I could think of Wells was Roe v. Wade was in 1972, and that shit may be gone by the end of the summer. <laughs> so um, <laughs> sometimes it goes the wrong direction. Um, we had, uh, we had uh, quite a few questions come in from listeners, um, and I want to get to some of them because some of them make sure. me um, – uh, they were specifically for you. Um, and I want to get to some because a few of them made me laugh. Scott from Fort Lauderdale, I'll just get to that because I think it's, it's a serious question, but I don't know why it makes me laugh. He asks, do we have too many laws in general? Yes, I think we do. I, you know, I mean, I, one of the things that happens is every time there's some sort of uh, a, egregious thing that happens to somebody, a state lawmaker says, I'm going to have Sophie's law or Jill's law or Joe Bob's law. And they go to the state legislature and they pass a new law that outlaws X, Y, Z and, and doubles the penalty for it. And, and then we find out 10 years later that well, we're putting the wrong people in jail because we didn't think long enough and hard enough about the the repercussions of that law. Um, that happens all the time. Um, you know, it's one of the things that 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 I've thought about as it relates to the criminal code is that kind of like the kind of like uh, the tax code. I think we would be a lot better off if we if we completely gutted both of those things and made them 
a, a, a lot more simple. I mean, our criminal code kind of started with the Ten Commandments, if we're going to be really, you know, simplified about it. Um, and and now we literally have um, big, huge tablets with, with <laughs> right. lots and lots of code of, you know, this is illegal, that's illegal, and everything else. So I, 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 I think he's right. I think actually that's part of the problem is that, um, you know, I talk about fines and fees. I talk about these lists and lists and lists of charges that people uh, have to pay um, if they if they end up in, in, in front of their municipal court judge or county judge. I mean, step one would be just get rid of those. There's, there's no reason for the courts to act as a tax collector. There's no reason at all for any court to have to act as a tax collector. Well, we collector. did, like you and like so we said, of, like we've abolished just, debtor's prison, so this is – Yeah, just right. get rid of them. Don't, don't, don't use the courts to try to collect money from people, period. End it. Okay. That sounds like a good way to end that one. That was a pretty clear answer. Um, I'm going to go to, let's see, Carla from Chicago. Um, do we need an alternate system to what we have now? And is there a country that is setting an, exa- setting an example to look for to? Well, you know, in lots of different ways, you know, I hear a lot of reformers talk about Germany as it relates to incarceration. Uh, they treat incarceration a little bit differently and practice some more uh, restorative justice types of things. Um, almost every country – does incarceration better than the United States. Why is that? And, and by doing incarceration better than the United States, I mean they're putting fewer people in jail. Is that because we're incentivized in the United States to put people in jail? Yes, and because we still haven't gotten over this you know, uh, mid-80s, mid-90s tough-on-crime mentality. We really still haven't learned our lessons from, um, you know— uh, Michelle Alexander writes in 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 the new Jim Crow about uh, about our mass incarceration problems so so effectively we haven't learned the 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 mistakes yet. Um, so specifically, that, what does Germany we just do? Put way too many people in jail. Um, they 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 try to uh, they just don't put people in jail for as long and and as often and and their jails are not. Um, as horrible a place. They Because Germany's there's not a, there's a, a section, Germany is not a liberal country. As as Europe no, goes, no. it is probably the most conservative country. But but a lot of a lot of conservative countries recognize that wait a minute, um why should we be why, why should we be putting people in jail in a horrible place when we want them eventually to come back to our society? I write about so the law that that Missouri has that charges people for jail time has been around since the 1800s and in the late 1800s and the early 1900s the law had a bunch of different elements to it that are no longer in the law. So for instance, if I was arrested back in the early 1900s in Missouri, the law said that I could bring my own blankets and pillow to, to, to be more comfortable oh, in jail. How nice. And it said that uh, my family could bring me food. Mm. And, you know, these are things that saved the taxpayers money. And probably and reduced rec- recidivism, didn't it? And that recognized that the purpose of a jail is to punish somebody for something wrong that they did, but but not to keep them in perpetuity, that they're going to go back to our society, that we want them back in our society, and we don't want them to come back damaged. And I, I write metaphorically at one point in the book about about the Andy Griffith show and about, you remember Otis, the town drunk, and Otis would let him... Yep. 
Otis would let himself in and out. And, and, you know, I laughed about that when I was a kid watching that, but there's an element of that that used to be built into American law. Well, I mean, you that we treated people with a little bit more respect than we do a lot of people that we put in jail. These as days. well, as you were talking about it, I could not help but think of all of the um, uh, stories that I've heard about the prison system in Norway. Which, yes, Norway would be considered a very progressive country, but they have all, almost all of the prisons in Norway are like sort of check in and check out, uh, stay away camps. <laughs> you come in for the day or the yep. night or the weekend or whatnot, and their recidivism rate is much lower. But then you said, these are supposed to be people who we want to rejoin society. And I think that could be, we'll have to have you back to, to delve into this a little bit more, but I think that could be part of the problem in America. Unfortunately, you know, the people who we put in to jail too often are people who I think a lot of folks, unfortunately, would rather we didn't have come back in society. Um, and I think we got to fix that mindset in the first and right away um, in order to get to a place where people can remember the purpose of prison is to punish and reform. And hopefully when people return to society, they are able to contribute and get themselves back up on their feet. And I don't think that we have a system in place right now that has any interest in people becoming productive members of society once they leave. You know, they'd just like to come, have them come on back and uh, come back to prison and keep the beds full. Think about every problem that we're dealing with in our economy right now as it relates to uh, primarily workers and supply chain. We don't have enough workers to keep restaurants open. We don't have enough bus drivers. We don't have enough truck drivers. We don't have enough X, Y, Z as we recover from this pandemic. And then think about the fact that we, we have more people in prison and in jail. I write, you know I write mostly about jails. Uh, I, I, I don't off the top of my head, but in part because I write mostly about city jails and county jails uh, and, 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 they're really hard to track the numbers as compared to uh, uh, state and federal prisons. But you think about our mass incarceration problem and all the workers we have behind bars that we could have driving our buses and working at our restaurants and doing all of the things that we're complaining about as we try to recover from this pandemic right now. Um, this is, you know, I this mean, is fascinating. I just l pulled it up. And so, you know, what you find online, you trust with only, uh, you know. Trust it as much as you, <laughs> trust it as much as you should. People should trust but verify here. But according to um, uh, Statista, uh, a website that is trying to charge me, so I have to assume it's probably got some real facts. <laughs> um, the U.S. as of July 2021 had 2.1 million prisoners. This is not. This is a number, not a percent. 2.1 million right. prisoners, followed only. By China, not not followed only by China. The next closest is China. They have 1.7, but I'd also argue and remind people they also have 1.6 billion people, whereas right. we only have right. 300 million. Brazil is in third place with 759,000. India, um, which also has almost 1.7 billion, 1.6 billion, only has 478,000. I won't do the whole list, but um, uh, 
And nobody else is close. Nobody, nobody else, is else is close. And the countries that are far larger than us, um, the, the, most, the country that's most comparable in size to us in the world is Indonesia. And they are at 274,000. Their population is about the same as ours. They're at 274,000 people in, in prison. And they're not a really liberal country either. They're pretty conservative. And, no, and, and keep in mind, those numbers are just prison. We're not even talking about right. jails, jails so, and, and— So you're right, uh, damn. 2.1 million people right in jail. Um, we could probably unload those ships a little faster <laughs> if we had less people in jail it's, and more it, people working. Um, it's one of the things I, I raise when I talk to people about this. I was like, do we really want to be worse than China and Brazil? Well, you know. Um, one last question, and then I got to ask you a bi- the big one. Um, Anna from Nashville asks, does what, does what is being called wokeness? Well, okay, so woke, I'll call it wokeness, but we know that there's been some debate about that. So Anna asks, does, does wokeness help or hurt the cause of criminal justice reform, or is there too much pushback? I don't know how to answer that because I don't know what people mean when they, when they, when they talk about you know, being woke, either on the left or the right. I mean I think people on the right are trying to turn it into something that it's not, sort of like critical race theory. Um, I, I look at wokeness this way. I was on a panel after uh, Ferguson. This was probably back in, in late 2015, um, and it was a panel at Harris-Stowe University, and, and it was a crowd of mostly uh, black people, and I was the only white person on the panel, and I was asked a question – do you consider yourself an ally of the, of the Black Lives Matter movement? And, and, and I heard the word ally in the way that some people use the word woke these days. And my response was, that's not for me to say. My, my job is to do my job and to seek justice and write about justice and, and, and write about the truth as I see it. I was on that panel because I write a lot about Black Lives Matter type issues and police brutality, and it, you know, it's but kind of how I started what, I think writing you about know criminal what justice reform. Is, I mean, you are a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist from the <laughs> largest newspaper in a in what used to be a bellwether state, but is now a conservative state. You're in a in a very progressive bubble of right, a very conservative right. Midwestern state. Um, does the fact that you some people would argue that the fact that you hesitated to answer whether you are an ally that it was not for you to say might indicate that you were worried it would be, your answer would be taken the wrong way um do you think that that's no, I a did, fear I, that people have when discussing this issue i just don't you know one of the things that i do when i write about um issues affecting black people as much as I can is recognize that my lived experience is different than theirs. And so I try to use black voices as much as I can. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, the community trusts me with their stories. But you were also and new so, to use white voices when it was necessary, right? Oh, and absolutely. You, but, you, but, you, absolutely. but you had discussions, I kind of understood as we were talking, you had to have discussions with people to explain to them why you were doing that because it was for a purpose. Um, yes. And, and you had a purpose for doing it, but you needed to explain to folks, I'm not, I'm not diminishing black voices. I'm not trying to hide voices of color um, in this, but I'm trying to highlight this for a purpose. Do you feel that you have to defend yourself? 
No, I just feel I have to be transparent okay. with people. Fair. I explain I explain what my what my particular motivation is on things, and I guess that's where I get to with the 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 use of the word woke is it's it's not a word that I would use to apply to myself. I think in the concept in which it was used back in 2014, uh, when when mostly it meant, gosh. Uh, I care about the civil rights of, of my fellow human beings, be they black or white. If that's what woke means, then then yeah, wokeness helps uh, uh, absolutely uh, move criminal justice reform matter. If 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 a person from the right is using wokeness as code for uh, political correctness, then 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 I don't even want to address. Uh, what their implication is, because we're talking about two different words. Well, the reason I ask it is because I'm going back to the fact that you used, you you understood, you were smart enough to know how to push, to put the correct stories in front of the people in Jefferson City, hopefully, to get, you know, to get them to see what was happening in rural communities in, in Missouri. It's also right. happening in the cities, but you knew to use those things. You won the Pulitzer Prize for it, um, specifically for covering these kinds of things. Um, but the fact that I, I do question sometimes how, div- I mean, I, I, I am worried sometimes about how divided we have become that anyone would have to do, I mean, I'm not suggesting you did some sort of yoga to, to make, to, to get their stories to the right people. But when we have our arguments, a lot of times we have to make we have to do a lot of yoga in order to make sure we're targeting our message directly to the right people because if you don't say it this way, then some people will completely discount you and turn you off and not listen at all. And arguably, I'm not putting words into Tony's mouth right now, y'all. He didn't say this. I'm saying it. But arguably, I think that had you written a lot of the stories initially about black people in St. Louis who had the same things happening to them – no one in Jefferson City would have seen it. No one would have paid attention to it. They would have said, well, those are the black folks in St. Louis. We're going to ignore it. But you had to be somewhat strategic to get people to pay attention and care about something that affected everybody, right? But that's because of this ridiculous division in this country where if you've got an R behind your name, you're evil. If you've got a D behind your name, you're evil, Um, depending on what side you're on, right? I mean, is there a is there a solution to that? And um, and can you can you please win a Pulitzer Prize for solving that one for us? <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know if there's I don't know if there's a solution to it other than the fact that when when talking about public policy as much as possible, we have to um, not judge motivations but judge words for what they are and judge policies for what they are. Um, and, and so that's why I try to, uh, as much as possible in my conversations, uh, avoid the code words that set people off. As soon as they see the word woke or they see the word, uh, the, the, the hashtag defund police or back in the day in 2014, 2015, uh, if, if, if I use the, you know, the hashtag Ferguson, I immediately turn off half of my audience. Uh, and that's unfortunate because um, 
but is that also those words? Those words have a meaning uh, that 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 sometimes are are really valuable. I think it's important to understand the uh, the thoughts behind, for instance. The folks who use the phrase defund police or talk about being abolitionists as it relates to jails and as it relates to our current criminal justice system. I don't have to agree with them on everything, but it's important to understand where they're coming from and what those words mean to them. You, you, what, uh, and so you, you talk about I mean, as you're talking, I can't help but ha- have callbacks in my mind to a guest we've had on the show, a friend, a Wonderful North Carolinian, um, Reverend Barber, who who has made in so many words an argument that these issues are not always really just racial; they are about class. You know his 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 Moral Mondays movement here in North Carolina and his work um, uh, with the Poor People's Campaign have been about the fact that you know. Some people like to divide us by race, and yes, we absolutely have a lot of racism still in this country. But a lot of the things that are affecting um, black and brown people in the cities affect rural white folks in the country. Um, also, because a lot of the a lot of the injustices also have to do with class, and you kind of showed that in your story here, in your in the stories that you've told in your columns. You absolutely talk about it in Profit and Punishment. And if you're listening and you didn't get the title at the beginning when I introduced him, Tony Messenger, the book is Profit and Punishment. And it is um it's it's important, but it's and it's enraging um because of some of the stories that you tell, but it's very readable. So if you're listening I and you are okay with kind of getting a little pissed off at the government um, right before Christmas, I definitely suggest <laughs> that you go pick it up um, because it's a story that not a lot of people, not enough people are talking about. But I love the fact that it really highlights, personally, this is me, it highlights the fact that we do have quite a few things in common um, beyond our, our racial identities. Poor folks are getting fucked in this country by, no matter what their race is, getting completely screwed in this country by not just what you're talking about with, you know, fines and, and the way the criminal justice system works, but, but you know, the tax, we could go on and on about how we get, um, poor people are getting screwed. But I, it just reminded me of how Reverend Barber has framed the issue a lot, and I think you you do that very well in the book and in your columns. Um, that it's it's it should be important to more people than it is important to because those folks who think, oh well, this is just a problem with for black people in the city, and I don't care about it. They should not buy, steal mascara. You know, people in the country, white folks in the country, are getting screwed by the system too. Clay, do you remember the the Saturday Night Live skit from a couple of years ago, the the Black Jeopardy skit yeah, yeah. that involved Tom Hanks? Uh-huh. So I actually write about it in in the book because it is such a perfect metaphor for how when that episode starts, you think Tom Hanks is going to be this red hat MAGA wearing, yes. you know, Trumpite who's, who's who going to have nothing in common with the black contestants in the show. And it is a hilarious skit because the exact opposite happens. Right? He's just a poor white country dude who has the same problems and hates his utility company for cutting off his electricity the same way the poor black people in the city uh-huh. do. And, and I talk about that episode because there really is a 
commonality if we can get beyond yeah. uh, our, our our natural incl- inclination um, to discriminate. There's a there, there's a Broadway play Avenue Q uh, that's that that's a play with Muppets in which they they sing a song. Everybody's a little bit racist, um, and 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 this skit you know really gets to that point that. A lot of the things that happen to poor people happen uh, regardless of their race. Now, I do argue in the book, and I think it's true, that these the, the criminalization of poverty has uh, a, a, a larger oversized impact on people of color. But that being said, I, I, I just love that Black Jeopardy skit because it's so telling about our ability to recognize our common humanity – if we just get to the root of those issues and try a little bit harder. Well, you've answered the question better than almost any guest we've had um, on this podcast in in a while, but I'm going to ask it to you anyway. Um, I do want to remind folks that the title of the book is Profit and Punishment, and it'd be a great Christmas gift um, for somebody, uh, but it's also something you should pick up and and read for yourself. Um, Tony Messenger, how the heck are we going to get along? By understanding uh, our our commonality, by by trying to um, find that one issue that we agree with uh, with somebody who happens to have a different political philosophy than ours, um, one of my grown children uh, loves Donald Trump, and you know what? I love my son, and I love. Uh, his daughters, my grandchildren. And so when he occasionally digs me uh, by sending me a picture of him wearing a Let's Go Brandon sweatshirt, um, I I let that go and turn the conversation to how, how did my granddaughters do in soccer this weekend? Because we still love each other and have a common bond that is more important than his political philosophy or my political philosophy. And someday when this pandemic is over uh, and, and we, we can more freely spend time with our fellow man and our neighbors, I hope we can all find a way to do that. Okay, I don't care what color hat you wear uh, or, or, or what ridiculous slogan you put on your sweatshirt. Um, can we just watch a soccer game together? Can we just uh, talk about the latest episode of Succession or Yellowstone and how much we loved it or hated it? Can we just do some things to find commonality so that when that issue like criminal justice reform comes in front of us and we read profit and punishment and say, wow, I want to do something about that, uh, we, we, we can hold hands with our neighbors uh, and not even know what their p- particular politics are because we just recognize that we don't want to see poor people abused by the system. 